I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. You're listening to Ryan Heath, your host, and it is going to be a great episode this week. Obviously, the German elections really exploded on the weekend. So Angela Merkel, she won, but is it really a victory? The hard work is just beginning for her as she struggles to form a new coalition government and has to deal with the far right. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, wasted absolutely no time rushing to fill the political vacuum left by Merkel's poor performance. He delivered a speech that went for nearly two hours at the Sorbonne University in Paris Tuesday, and it was jam-packed with ideas on how Europe should operate after Brexit. It was certainly creative, but maybe not the creativity that Theresa May was hoping for when she called for that creative thinking in her own Florence speech last week. Now, the big issue this weekend coming up is going to be the vote for independence in Catalonia, Spain. So that's where we're putting our big focus in this week's episode. We're going to hear from both sides of the debate and the difficulties Politico has had in covering it because of the intensity of feelings on each side. And in our Dear Politico advice section, we help out someone who recently heard a British journalist incorrectly refer to the UK being taken to the European Court in The Hague. We help them figure out how can you correct someone without causing offence? Before we hear from each side in the Catalan debate, I've come for a chat with Politico's managing editor, Stephen Brown. We're here in his office in Politico Towers in Brussels. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much, Ryan. Now, this is a very exciting debate to cover as a journalist, and the sides are very sensitive and engaged. What's the biggest challenge for you as the, the editor steering the ship and also as a journalist who's been really interested in this issue? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the biggest challenge is to make people see that we're being impartial. We're absolutely confident that we're being impartial. But of course, any article that we write that puts forward the separatists' argument is one too many for the Madrid government's point of view and vice versa. So we just have to make absolutely sure that if we're putting out one story um, about the separatists and we'll put out another one about the constitutional point of view, it's a difficult balance. It's not difficult to be impartial. You know, we have no skin in the game. Stephen, as a journalist and editor, have you found it easy enough to access both sides of the argument? I mean, my impression is that the Catalans have been pretty slick and that it's been a little bit difficult to get a face and a voice to some of Madrid's arguments when we, we try and cover this. What, what's your perspective? Um, in the two years since this debate has become really a live issue, we've been approached 
at lots of different levels by the Catalan separatists. So the, the regional government has made their president available for us twice, at least twice. Um, regional parliament, we spoke to the head of um, the Catalan parliament yesterday. The uh, grassroots movements, they've all been in here, into our offices in Brussels, not waiting for us to go to them, which we've also done. And we've tried to get the Madrid government to get us senior people, including the Prime Minister, talk to us about it, and they haven't done so so far. That tells you quite a lot. You do slightly get the impression that they hoped the whole thing would go away. They came out with all of these legal arguments, which are, you know, constitutional arguments, absolutely good, strong arguments. But they never really seem to have been able to put a face to the no campaign, so the C campaign, the yes campaign, they've got lots of people they can put up. They argue with passion. Obviously, they've got an advantage because they're the ones proposing change, and that's always a much more appealing argument for, for journalists, for headline writers, than arguing for the status quo. But you do get the feeling that Madrid could have come up with a face for the no campaign and perhaps a more emotional campaign. We've pointed out to, to, to them when they've lobbied us that... Arguing with the facts is fine, but you've got to appeal to the emotions as well. Now, there's also Brussels angles here as well. Do you think it's the rule of law issue that's really preeminent in the minds of EU decision makers as they studiously avoid trying to intervene? Or is it more a fear of the domino effect that if something goes wrong in Catalonia, that it can happen in a bunch of other regions where there is a movement for independence? Well, I think they definitely do not want to be seen undermining in any way the constitutional rule in Spain. And that's been the position of most of them. One or two of them have slipped. Um, Juncker came out with a statement talking about um, the fact that he would respect the outcome. That's clearly not what Spain wants to hear him say, and I think he toned down that statement afterwards. Oh, there was definitely a bit of a spin army that came out. You know, the second he slipped out with that comment, we were then all told and pressured to understand that what he really meant was X, Y, Z, rather than the words he said. Too late, though, because the, the separatists are already using it. So he said it. So, and then I think the Hungary also came out and said something to, to a similar, um, to similar effect. Um, but I think it's also there, there is a large degree of concern about this spreading. So it could spread within Spain. You know, the Basque situation is at the moment, you know, um, in its best situation for many, many decades. Um, the region's doing economically well, but also the whole separatist debate there has calmed down an awful lot. And even the, the ETA have disarmed. But there are countless regions, including Flanders, where I live, where any sort of encouragement um, for the Catalans could be seen as implied encouragement for separatist groups around Europe. Um, we've already got, you know, Brexit, we've already got enough tension, enough centripetal force throwing away, you know, countries from the centre. Um, it's clearly not the time for them to be dealing with this. Let's broaden the scope out a little bit now. You're someone who has covered a lot of politics in Latin and South America, for example, um, and also other countries across Europe. Does this debate and the independence movement for Catalonia, does it resemble anything else that you've seen? You know, do, do, do you get a sense of where this is going to go after the vote based on your previous experiences with these sort of debates? I can honestly say that this is one of the first occasions where I've been totally defeated um, and being able to predict it. I've predicted the way things would go in the past and been completely wrong. This time I don't even have a prediction because you're asking people who are in the middle of this debate what's going to happen on Monday, on Sunday, and they have absolutely no idea. So I think it's very, very difficult um, in that the two sides seem to have absolutely nowhere where they can talk to each other. There are no compromise 
on the basic points um, possible. Whereas in all the other political sort of conflicts that I've covered, generally you can see that there is some sort of space for a negotiated outcome. I see no space at the moment in this Catalan question for a negotiated outcome, and that's pretty bad news for Spain. Well, there you have it, listeners, from our managing editor, Stephen Brown. Now it's time to hear from representatives of each side of the debate so you can decide for yourselves where you stand. And first up, this is Jorge Toledo, the Spanish Secretary for European Affairs. We're here at the Sofitel Hotel near uh, where the EU's big meetings take place and you're about to head off to the meeting of Europe Affairs Ministers, the General Affairs Council. So thank you for taking time to talk to us for a few minutes. Maybe if we could start off by you telling our listeners, you know, what's the reason why Catalans would be better off sticking with Spain? Why should they be in Spain rather than wanting independence and going off separately? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why that uh, the, the Catalans uh, should be better in Spain. One of them is that they have been in Spain for the last at least 500 years. And uh, Spain is a historical reality over 500 years old and in the Europe of today, in the Europe of the last 60 years at least, we are in a logic of integration and not of disgregation or segregation. All sorts of economic, social, cultural. Over 500 years, ties have been created between uh, Catalans and the rest of Spaniards. Um, over 30-40% of the population in Catalonia comes from the rest of Spain. Um, the rest of Spain is the biggest market. And are you worried for what will happen to those Spaniards, the ones who don't identify as Catalan, but are living in Catalonia and could be cut off after the vote? Well, I'm not worried because independence is not going to happen. Very clear answer. But will we get to a point where we see armed officers and tanks stopping people from going into polling places? No, no, I don't think so. But, but uh, what I'm sure is that, uh, and President Rajoy has already stated it, uh, we will use all the instruments that the law has to stop illegal acts being performed. As you can see, uh, the reaction has been very proportionate to an unprecedented challenge to the law. And uh, President Rajoy and the government and the whole uh, parliament is uh, reacting proportionately, very moderately, and always a lawful action against an illegal, illegal act. That's the way we are proceeding. And if you have the law on your side, is there a chance that this is a political failure rather than a legal failure? And I'm thinking now around the situation where the Spanish Constitution agreed in 1978. Clearly, that's the, the law that takes precedence in this situation. But half of the people in Catalonia, they weren't born in 1978. Some of them feel a little bit tied to a process that they don't feel they can affect. So is there a political solution that you can pursue to, you know, diffuse the situation, to give perhaps more autonomy to Catalans, to renegotiate the budget situation so that even if you win legally, you don't fail politically? You're absolutely right. It, does, it is an absolute political failure by uh, the side of the Catalan government and some part of the Catalan parliament. They have been incapable of 
finding legal solution to a problem that has been in part created by, by them. They have breached the Spanish constitution, the rules of their own parliament, and what is even, I wouldn't say worse, but more absurd, they have breached their own statute of autonomy, which is the basis of their competences. The president of the Generalitat de Catalonia is the president of the Generalitat de Catalonia of the regional autonomous government because of the law, his own law, and he has breached, even revoked, his own law without following the right procedures. Not only have they failed politically, but they have not failed, they have completely breached every legality in Catalonia. And are there any ingredients for trust the day after the vote? So whether some voting takes place or not, you'll have a situation where you need to discuss with somebody in Barcelona about how to move forward. So in, in your mind and in the Spanish government's mind, does it have to be a different Catalan government before a dialogue can take place? Or will, will you try and initiate a dialogue, even if it is still Carlos Puigmont and his government? Listen, the, the Spanish government has never said we want to choose the Catalan government. The Catalan government is uh, um, elected, chosen by the Catalan parliament after a regional elections. So we will have to deal with, with whatever Catalan government is in place, uh, but we will always deal with the Catalan government uh, according to the constitution, according to their own statute. There is no possible dialogue on independence of Catalonia, like there is no possible dialogue on independence in uh, most of the countries of the world, all of the countries of uh, Europe except the UK, in which their constitution and written constitution allows for a legal referendum. I spoke last week with Josep Borrell, the Spanish former minister who is a socialist, who is the president of the European Parliament. And he's against independence, but he also feels like more could be done within the Spanish political framework to have this dialogue going. And he thinks there's about one quarter of Catalans who will uh, reject the Union of Spain no matter what, and about another quarter who feel like they support independence now for economic or other reasons. And so my question to you is, will some of this be solved over time as the Spanish economy improves, as unemployment goes down, as growth picks up? I think so. It can be. It can be. Not from one day to the other, but it will be solved. This is not the first time something happens of this nature. Uh, in, and it has always been solved. What can't happen is that a part of Spain decides on its own what the whole of Spain is. I'm not a Catalan, but I, I wasn't born in Spain, I'm Spanish. Yeah. So I can consider myself Spanish from all of Spain. Mm -hmm. Why would someone deprive me from my right in Catalonia about an essential part of Spain? This, this, is, this is something that I feel, but many, many Spaniards feel. Uh, that uh, one part of what we consider our country, what was described in the, in the Spanish Constitution of 1978 as our country, and a constitution that was approved by an overwhelming majority of Spaniards in a referendum, by 91% of Catalans in, the in a referendum, how can someone deprive us of our right 
by a vote of a part of Spain. I mean, this, this is inconceivable. The Catalan government is there with the highest degree of autonomy the Catalonia has ever had, with the highest degree of autonomy in Europe. They have many powers, they have many competences. They don't have the one to call for a uh, self-determination uh, referendum, which will deprive the rest of Spain of an in integral right uh, recognized by the Constitution. And on that point, because members of the Catalan government have said to me that they don't have the same level of autonomy as the Basque country, and that some of it has been wound back. Some of the autonomy has been uh, reduced since 2010. And, and so you're saying explicitly that's not correct. Uh, they don't have what, uh, what the, uh, the Basque uh, uh, autonomy and Navarra, both uh, autonomous community have, which is uh, a kind of fiscal autonomy. Because this is an historical right recognized in the Constitution for these two territories. Um, it's it's a, a question of uh, history. Uh, the three, what we call Diputaciones Vascas, had these powers, uh, have had these powers for centuries, and this is recognized in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. they, we can change the Constitution. They can, the Constitution can be changed. But that requires a national referendum, doesn't it? Not just a Catalonia referendum. <laughs> of course, but how could it be otherwise? Uh, the Constitution was approved in a national referendum. It was. Uh, it, it didn't take two hours uh, to uh, uh, to approve the, the Spanish Constitution. It took months, even years. Uh, it took 40 years for Spain to have the rule of law installed. It took 40 years of uh, dictatorship to get to a democracy. And the Catalan government and the Catalan parliament have revoked the Spanish Constitution, the rule of law, their own statute of autonomy, in a debate without amendments in two hours. Now, one final question to help some of the non-Spanish, non-Catalan listeners understand the situation. So, to outsiders, some people wonder, why can't this be handled like the Scottish referendum was in 2014? And now, one very clear reason for that is that the UK doesn't have a written constitution, so they have a little bit more flexibility in their arrangements about how they handle that sort of question. Um, but can you explain why the Spanish government doesn't for example, copy the way London handled the Scottish question. Well, why Spain and why other countries? I mean, Italy, in 2017, there was a, not a challenge, but a proposal by one of its regions wanted to call a self-determination referendum. The Constitutional Court in Italy said it was unlawful, it couldn't be done, because it is written in the Italian constitution as it is in the Spanish or the French or the German constitution, which, by the way, also ruled against self-determination, that this couldn't be done. So, I mean, uh, uh, you can ask a government for things, but w what you cannot ask a government in a country where we have rule of law is to go against the law. We cannot go against the law. We can change it. I remember a long time ago, uh, 1962, President Kennedy was faced with a challenge by a governor when a governor refused to abide by a, a Supreme Court ruling and to admit black student in the University of Mississippi. The governor 
was claiming that the people of Mississippi didn't want this to happen. But uh, President, in a famous speech, uh, President uh, Kennedy said that it was a basic principle of the United States of America and of freedom to abide by the law. You can disagree with the law, you can change the law, but you cannot not apply the law because you think it is not fit to your purposes. Many Catalan politicians argue that they support their regional autonomy and that they consider themselves European, that it's the middle layer, Madrid, that they reject. But of course, if you vote for independence, you automatically become a third country. So what, what is your message to, to Catalan voters who think that they would simply be able to rejoin the EU? Because I presume that you're about to tell me that Madrid would not support Catalonia becoming a new member state. No, I, I, I don't like this, this kind of hypothetical questions because the premise is, is wrong because they will never leave Spain. But w what is clear, and this is not a hypothetical question or, or answer, because it has been repeated by the European Commission, by the Parliament, by everyone. And it's in the treaties. It's, I mean, it, again, we are in a community of law. You cannot invent, you cannot um, create legislation uh, from scratch when it doesn't fit your purposes. If a region of a member state becomes independent, uh, the treaties no longer apply. The European project is very, very strong. And the European project, I will finish that with this, is a project based on integration, of people coming together, of frontiers disappearing, even physical frontiers. It's not about disintegration, which is what something like the Catalan independence process would lead us to. Minister, thank you very much. Now hear from Amadeo Altafage, who is the representative of Catalonia in Brussels. I'm here in the Catalan offices in Brussels with Amadeo Altafage, who is the representative of the Catalan government here in Brussels. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, good afternoon. So let's start with a really basic question. Why is it that millions of Catalans feel that they need to be independent and separate from Spain as a nation-state? Okay, that's a very pertinent question, actually, because Catalans have been traditionally involved and very constructive in Spanish politics, especially since the uh, transition to democracy from dictatorship in the late 70s. So it's a good question to ask yourself what happened after decades of positive commitment with the governments from left and from right that the change uh, the minds of so many uh, Catalans and that's actually the core issue here, the, the increasing frustration of many, many Catalans from uh, different origins, uh, from different languages even, with the, uh, the Spanish politics and with uh, the, the ruling party, the Partido Popular's politics, uh, for the last, uh, I would say, um, 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that the uh, autonomy uh, bill that was approved by both the Catalan and the Spanish parliaments and uh, voted in a referendum was uh, wiped out basically by a uh, constitutional court ruling, ruling that uh, really reflected uh, an instrumentalization of this constitutional court was uh, really a turning point in 2010. And ever since, there's been a clear uh, effort of recentralization, 
of the Spanish state and many Catalans uh, feel that the Spanish state is not defending their interests and therefore they have uh, turned to other options um, outside Spain. And is there a sort of pragmatic economic argument as well that has been mounted? Because we were obviously in a very difficult economic and financial situation for many years from 2008 and Spain was one of the hardest countries hit. And it's been put to me by different members of the Catalonia Parliament, for example, that Catalans put more into the national budget than they get back and that that's not a fair arrangement. And given how tight finances have been, and, and you know that very well from the times that you worked at the EU and were a spokesperson on these economic issues, has that been a factor in driving the support for independence? Uh, if it's been a factor, it has not been a, a central and decisive uh, factor. So it's more freedom and identity and language issues rather than these... Uh, it is a respect, essentially, uh, a respect to the Catalan society at large, and that includes, of course, the language, uh, the education uh, system. Also, uh, fiscal imbalances are relevant, uh, no doubt about that. Investment in infrastructure, for instance. But I think it's more something related to, to attitudes coming from the central government in, in, in Madrid. Well, I was speaking with Jorge Toledo, who is the European Affairs Minister of the government in Madrid this morning, and one quote I wanted to share with you, he said, quote, there is no possible dialogue on independence. He said that there was a possible dialogue on practical issues that Catalans may be facing, but it was really a black and white statement that they weren't going to talk about independence with you and they were going to strictly interpret the Spanish constitution as saying that there can be no unilateral attempt at independence. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think that that short quote is, uh, is, is very telling. It says, it says a lot about the, the, the problem. Basically, this is a political uh, challenge and it should be addressed through politics. And it's been addressed by all means, uh, the uh, judiciary, the, the police forces, undercover operations, etc., but not through politics. And, and that's the, the core issue, essentially. It is really unfortunate and it's, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a black and white, uh, passionate, uh, macho, Latino <laughs> approach mm -hmm. if you, you want. It's not rational at all because I think that most of the uh, tensions could have been diffused years ago and the issues could even have been fragmented, the problems, and uh, addressed uh, through negotiations, through talks. And is there any way now to diffuse the tensions? If the Spanish government in Madrid said you can have a national referendum where all Spaniards get to vote on whether to change the constitution and allow Catalonia to consider independence. Would, would something like that satisfy the government and, and the mood uh, amongst the people who want independence? In, in, in crisis management, you, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, relatively easy and, uh, and it goes very fast to escalate the conflict, but it's very difficult to promote confidence-building measures, as the experts say. In this case, uh, basically sending uh, thousands and thousands of uh, militarized policemen to Barcelona, arresting senior officials of the government, uh, Threatening with prosecution, 75% uh, of the mayors of Catalonia, it's clear that this uh, doesn't help and it will be very, very difficult to recover some confidence in, in the state after such measures which are perceived by a vast majority of, of Catalans uh, as aggressive. Uh, as, as they are, and I think that they even bring back uh, memories of uh, the darkest days in, in Spain. How far is the Catalan 
autonomous police force willing to go, do you think, to ensure ballot access? Because we might see a situation of almost competing police forces obstructing or facilitating people's access to the ballot, and that gets to be a very risky situation. Tensions are running high, I agree with you. Uh, at, at the same time, there's been no uh, significant incident uh, so, so far, and it hasn't been the, the case actually in the last six years where we had huge uh, demonstrations with more than one million people on the street and never a single incident. So I trust that the population will uh, remain calm in, in spite of this increasing presence, uh, which uh, visually sometimes gets quite... Uh, threatening frankly what is uh, scary is that we we don't see any political project coming from uh, from uh, madrid uh, for for catalonia so whatever happens on october the, the first there will be a, a new day uh, on october the second and catalans should even those who want to stay in spain are entitled to ask for a perspective for uh, for scenarios for options uh, for catalonia to evolve in spain but more of the same is not an option for uh, a vast majority of, of catalan people according to all polls that we've seen uh, from different uh, sources over the past months between 70 and 80 percent of the catalan citizens say they want to decide once and for all on these issues through a referendum. One thing that also seems to be lacking is a formal no campaign. There is um, a very strong informal or formal yes campaign and then the no campaign hasn't really come into full existence. How legitimate is the vote in that case when you can't have all of those structures that you would normally see in another referendum like we saw with Scotland voting on whether to stay in the UK? Well, I would differentiate the obstacles, the objective obstacles that are being put to hold this referendum in a, in a totally normal way and the legitimacy of it. The legitimacy lies in decisions taken by the Catalan parliament, by an absolute majority, a parliament that uh, was uh, chosen not so uh, long ago, just uh, one and a half years ago, with a clear majority in favour of independence. But all Catalan citizens can vote and, and express themselves in, in this referendum. I'm getting uh, increasingly concerned that the silence by the EU institutions and uh, EU Commission in particular could be understood by some in Madrid as kind of an endorsement of these repressive uh, acts, which is very risky in terms of the reputation or uh, reputational uh, impact for the European Commission. And that brings us to this really tricky question of the EU and the rule of law and what is their role in defending the rule of law. I think there's risks on both sides of the coin for the EU here because they could be seen to be endorsing some kind of illegal referendum if they gave comfort to the Catalan side and then they could be seen to be supporting repressive tactics that seem out of step with democracy in 2017 if they were not to give caution to the Madrid side of the argument. Can you sympathise with the EU's dilemma here or, or what would you like the EU to do? I can understand the, the, the rationale. Uh, I spent 10 years in the Commission uh, as a senior official uh, and I, I see that people in the Commission want to protect the institutions, the members of the College of the Commissioners, but we are not asking for any interference here. We are just reminding the European Commission in particular that they are the guardians of the treaty and there are a number of basic principles that are established in the treaty, in Article 2 in particular, that uh, should be safeguarded. But we are asking the Commission just to encourage political dialogue. 
that uh, political uh, challenges are addressed with politics. And I think that the Commission should be in a position to assume at least this call to all parties involved to, to talk uh, about there. Even uh, in, in some places in Europe we start to see uh, people calling for mediation, international mediation. Well, if if at the end of the day uh, Spain and Catalonia are not able to, to discuss bi bilaterally, uh, that would not be because of Catalonia, then maybe a third party could be, uh, let's say, instrumental in, in bringing the, the parties together, in facilitating uh, talks. And that would happen after the referendum, or it's something that you consider to be on the table now in the the countdown to the referendum. Ideally, it would have happened uh, some time ago, but uh, let's let's be realistic. I mean, the, the referendum is about to take place in a couple of days this Sunday, so uh, um, I think that uh, it will depend very much on how the things uh, take place uh, this this Sunday. Hopefully, uh, with no uh, episodes of uh, violence, no no tensions. I put it to Minister Toledo that he faced a legal success but a political failure is one of the situations that the Spanish state is facing. And he also compared what the Spanish state is doing to John F. Kennedy overruling the racist southern governors in the 1960s. Those governors didn't want to comply with court rulings on desegregation of schools and JFK said you must comply, and he brought in federal authorities to ensure compliance. And he compared the Spanish government's acts in Catalonia this week and in recent weeks to the acts of JFK. Uh, I, see, I see a pained look on your face hearing this analogy. Uh, do you want to describe how that makes you feel and react? I think this is uh, abusive. Uh, you cannot play with that kind of language. Even Minister Dusty's... Uh, draw a kind of a comparison with the Nazis. Uh, well, uh, whoever knows the Catalan society knows very well that uh, this is totally out of touch with uh, reality. It is offensive, but it's also very dangerous. Catalonia is one of the most uh, open and inclusive societies uh, in Europe. Uh, it's been a land of migration traditionally, intra-Spanish migration, international migration. And maybe one final question related to identity because it's obviously the goal of most people in Catalonia to retain their membership and their connection with the European Union, regardless of what were to happen in this referendum. Um, achieving independence at the cost of European Union membership, is, is that a price worth paying? I don't think that you have to, to make the, a choice. Catalans are clearly a pro-European nation. This discussion took place already in 2014 around the uh, Scottish referendum uh, and it is obvious to, to many uh, academics uh, and, uh, and uh, analysis, analytics that a process of accession to the EU can be organized from the EU itself so before leaving the state of origin mm -hmm. through a fast-track negotiation. If Spain blocks this uh, solution, I will assume that Spain will not accept the independence of Catalonia and therefore Catalonia will be still in the European Union. So, And if uh, Spain accepts independence, uh, I don't see why they would block the, the membership of Catalonia because it would be detrimental for uh, its own interests uh, and not only uh, Spain's interests but and also... And perhaps also those who don't identify as Catalan but 
who are living in Catalonia, because there is that third 35% of the population who consider themselves migrants into Catalonia who might find themselves stuck in that moment. Yes, but uh, nationality should not be an issue. Actually, the transitional law that was passed also by the Catalan Parliament establishes very clearly that Catalan citizens can uh, hold their Spanish nationality, so nobody is asked to give up on its uh, Spanish nationality. And by the way, the, uh, the Spanish Constitution in its uh, Article 11 uh, foresees the possibility that, uh, well, it's not the possibility actually, uh, any uh, person from uh, Spanish origin uh, keeps the Spanish nationality. So that's that would not be an issue. And by the way, by keeping that Spanish nationality, they would keep also the EU citizenship. So you could find yourself in a surreal situation where uh, Catalonia, according to some, could be outside the European Union, I don't share that, uh, but all its citizens would be EU citizens at the same time. So it's uh, basically a, a legal uh, nonsense and it proves once again that the solution to this kind of uh, issues and geopolitical challenges uh, is always first political and only after uh, legal and it's an operation of legal uh, framing basically. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Amadeo Altafage speaking on behalf of Catalonia and before him, Jorge Toledo, the Spanish Secretary for European Affairs. Two men with very different opinions on what Catalonia's future should be. Not an awful lot of ground for compromise. And now we have just a couple of days before we have the real test on what the people of Catalonia think in the planned referendum on Catalan independence, Sunday, October 1st. Now it's time for our EU WTF moment of the week. Welcome back, our Brussels Brains Trust, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. And Lena Rabarus. Hi, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Well, what a week it was. The German elections, they promised to be boring, and they turned out to be explosive. So I think the very clear nomination this week is the alternative for Deutschland in the Bundestag in a clear third-place position in the election. Angela Merkel struggling over the finish line to probably become the chancellor again, and the Social Democrats having a really disastrous evening with barely 20% of the vote. What's your reaction, Alva? So I don't think this is really good for anyone. I think it was very unexpected. So yeah, a a lot of change on the horizon, but also um, we can't say that populism hasn't got a deep root in Germany. It's a kind of a backstep from what happened in, in France. Yeah, Lena, Merkel, she won even after letting a million refugees in, but not quite a decisive victory, was it? Yeah, I mean, it's not a great surprise, given her policies with the one million uh, refugees and the, don't forget, the Greek bailout. So uh, more and more Germans, they wanted more Germany, less Europe, and the AFD just came with this uh, answer for them. A very interesting point to, to, to notice that only 34% voted for the AFD just because they didn't want to vote for the traditional um, political parties. So it's kind of a Trump and Bernie Sanders effect. It's just against the status quo. Certainly. And now, I do hope to see the traditional political parties 
connecting a little bit more with their voters, uh, working together, uh, doing a little bit of more coalitions in order to save uh, Germany. Well, let's think about the personalities here. Martin Schulz was president of the European Parliament. I haven't actually heard anyone say he's got to go, which I find a little bit shocking given the terrible performance. And then also, on the other hand, Angela Merkel, like you were pointing out, in office for 12 years, two extremely controversial policies. Is there any other politician that we know of that would have finished first by 13 percentage points in their election if they'd been through all of that? No, definitely not. She's quite an enigma now. She's one of the longest serving prime ministers in Europe. And I think it, it does show that the fact that Schultz didn't step down, who else is there to fill the void when she leaves? She probably won't run for another term, right? The terrifying thing is that the AFD now will have all of the resources that they are entitled to as one of the biggest parties in the Bundestag. And what will happen in the next four years when Merkel is gone? So it'll be a very interesting election in four years, I think. She's a powerhouse, and she will create a void in her wake, I think. Lena, maybe that's the big danger, in that a good leader should also prepare the way for a good successor. And maybe that'll be the ultimate test of Merkel, whether there is a successor there. Good leaders create better leaders. That's, that's what's important, especially in, in politics. Um, still, the challenges of Germany, it's totally different challenges from the rest of, of Europe. Germany will never back off from being the center, let's say, of Europe. And uh, that is really a lot of thinking. And maybe there will be someone who will have the courage to pull a center political party and bring everyone together, just like President Macron has done for France. Well, maybe that's our actual final thought, is now that Merkel is at the weakest that she's been really in a decade, this moment when she doesn't know what her government is, when she's been hammered quite a bit at the polls, and you see Emmanuel Macron this week sweeping in with his vision for Europe, like not letting a second go by before he really fills that space left by Merkel. Is it time for Macron to fill the Merkel void? I think that they have to do it together. Whatever reform they bring, they'll have to do it as an, as an alliance. Now that she's a bit weakened, maybe she won't have the whole party behind her. That's that's, a, that's going to be a problem in the future. I think they were quite aligned before this. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if, you know, another great vision visionary speech for Europe comes out. Um, well, we've had three in two weeks. Why not have yeah, a fourth well, one next week? Exactly. It's the season. <laughs> <laughs> the season for visionary speeches. <laughs> Excellent. Well, now let's move into our Dear Politico advice section. This week, we have a very interesting question. I won't say who it comes from. I'll just read out the question. Dear Politico, I have a rather delicate problem. Recently, I heard a respected British journalist talk about the UK during Brexit being, quote, taken to the European court in The Hague, end quote. How can I correct such a prestigious person without causing offence? And given the plethora of European courts in Europe, and international courts in The Hague, how can I even be sure that I'm in the right when I try to make my correction? Do you or your readers have a handy mnemonic... I can't even say it. <laughs> mnemonic. <laughs> or rhyme. <laughs> Why would you bother? He's a British journalist, after all. Brexit is just around the corner. 
you know, still they uh, can't figure out uh, where is the Strasbourg from Luxembourg from The Hague. I mean, seriously. Well, maybe, I mean, I agree it's a significant mistake, but to put it in a bit of context, especially for any listeners in the United States or other parts of the world, it's the international courts that exist in The Hague. And then there are two big European courts, the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and then the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. It can be confusing, can't it? Yeah, I was trying to think of a, a rhyme. So I was thinking <laughs> ECJ as in justice for all matters EU and then ECHR as in rights. Oh, well, that, that doesn't even work. No, yeah. all the way with ECJ. Well, <laughs> that doesn't tell us anything about need, EasyJ, though, does it? Let's put a challenge. Maybe we can all come up with like um, something very interesting, no? With yeah, a song like can, L is all. We can do it. We can we can tell you the next time. But how how to address um, corrections? I think in a pol- in a polite way, you can send it via email or in a private message. Uh, you on can Twitter. edit it afterwards. Yeah. I mean, if, if if I said something really stupid, we would edit me out in this podcast, wouldn't we? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. absolutely. No, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is this is how it works. But with a big smile or with a nice email, you can always correct people. There we are. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Uh, thank you for listening. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so I want to put a big shout-out to Wei Dong Lin, Andrew Gray, and Rosie Belson. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.